Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer and professor of photography, Dennis Defabaugh. Dennis Defabaugh has been a professor of photography at the Rochester Institute of Technology for over 30 years, as well as shooting commercially for clients such as Coca-Cola, Eastman Kodak, Delta Airlines, and American Express, to name a few. His work has been exhibited around the world and has published several books, and especially uh, he just recently published a new book titled North by Nook, Greenland After Rockwell, Kent, where Dennis spent over a year living in Greenland, where he documented the landscape, people, and culture of Greenland. Dennis was one of my favorite professors I had while attending RIT, so I was really excited to get a chance to speak with him and kind of talk to him about everything he's done in his photography career. Um, He's done a lot, so I was really excited to talk to him. Um, So I hope you guys enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. Dennis Defabaugh, welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing? Good. Excited. Nice to be here. Definitely, man. We're back at RIT, my old stomping grounds, as well as you. You went to school here. Yes. Uh, Back in the 70s. Yeah, excited (laughs) to be back, man. Um, You got a cool new book coming out, North by Nook, um, which I think was coming out, what, in January? Well, it's coming out hopefully before Christmas. All right, so but, uh, Christmas is coming really soon. So yeah, I I would say within the next two or three weeks. All it right. all depends on shipping and. Uh, no, it's exciting. Um, we'll get into all that. Um, but I guess I kind of start off. Like I was kind of curious, like where you grew up and like um, where you kind of interested in growing up as a kid. I guess. Well, I grew up just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in a town called Newcastle. Um, back then there was probably about 50,000 people in the town and now there's probably 25,000. Wow. So big still industry related area. It was a great place to grow up. I, I had fun, you know, it was, had a lot of friends and Mm -hmm. a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And so that was good. And, you know, I think for the most part, every, most everybody was working in a still mill and, is that what your but, is that what, like your uh, folks did, or were they kind of working? Yeah, my on? father worked in a steel mill. My wife, who I married quite quite a few years later, her father worked in a steel mill. A lot of my friends worked in a steel mill, you know, um, and they probably would have stuck around if the steel mills were still there. But it was probably a, a blessing in disguise that mm-hmm. people moved out, started looking for other jobs and things like that or other other interests and so so for me I worked in steel mills for a couple of years and and that was about it. Was that kind of like after high school or it was um there was high school Vietnam was going on and I ended up getting my draft number which was 48 yes. and I did a volunteer draft and end up at, was in the army for two years. And when I came back, I started working in a still mill. Wow, where were you stationed in the army? Well, I was in Hawaii. Not bad. How do you pull that man? You how do you pull? <laughs> I but I I consider myself a Vietnam yeah, era vet. Yeah, you served, and man. My brother was an infantryman. 
wow. in Vietnam. So every time I say, well, I'm, I'm a Vietnam vet, he just looks at me like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> it's, uh, but, uh, that's interesting, man. Like, what do you remember about those days? Like, was when you first got in the Army, was it something, like, were you excited about it? Were you, like, proud, nervous? No, I or? was very, very nervous because I didn't know. At the time, most people were going to Vietnam and... I didn't know where I was going to end up, and um, and it just was, you know, I had friends, I had a good life, you know, it was, you know, the whole, I guess, uh, peace, love, and happiness era was starting. This was like 69, 70, I went in in 70, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and all of a sudden I'm in the Army, which is just the opposite of what I... Yeah. My interests were. Yeah, because, like, wh- what did they have you doing? Like, what was your job, like, in the Army? Well, I made maps, and uh, which was a great job. I was really lucky to get that. And the, the reason I did the volunteer draft is uh, once, once you know you're going to get drafted, it's inevitable. And so I figured with the volunteer draft, you can pick three, three MOSs. Okay. That maybe they'll put you in maybe they won't and i but photography is the first one and for people what's uh, mos what's that it's like a job oh got it what your job is in the army and uh photography was my first choice and then map compiling was second and i forget the third one and you know i ended up getting map compiling because i doubt if anybody else (laughs) put that down and every everybody probably put photography, so uh, that's what I ended up doing. So I went to basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Then went to uh, map making uh, school. How do they make like? How do they make the maps back then? Is it like? Oh, it was amazing. It was so cool. It was uh, when I was in Hawaii making maps. We were making maps of uh, Vietnam and. I was reading newspaper articles about President Nixon saying, you know, we are not in Laos. And and this was right about the time we were going into Laos and uh, Cambodia. And so we got these, they needed really good maps. And so we got 10 by 10 glass plates of images of Laos. And they're shot with... Hasselblad cameras, wow, uh, side by side on an airplane, Damn. and they would fly over, you know, with I don't know how often the the camera shot, and then they would they would be three D. You'd put two of them side by side, and you'd put them in these projectors, and they would project onto this little kind of a stand, small stand yeah. that had a little plate. And on the plate was a hole with a light, and that that light would go down onto the well, basically onto what's projected the right. map, basically, or the photograph of yeah, the yeah. aerial. You could see three dimensional, and we would put that white dot on the ground, and that's how we made contour lines. Wow, on the map. it was just incredible. And I remember once with um, a photograph, it just was so, like, 
indelible in my mind. And they were saying, we're not in Laos. And here, the photograph, half of it is just bomb craters. The other half is a defoliaged forest. Yeah. So all these trees, trees without leaves on them. And at the top of this highest tree is this white bird, like an I don't know what kind of bird it was, but it was a big, big bird, like a uh, stork or something like that. Yeah. And it was just incredible to be looking at that, something that was shot probably not more than two weeks ago. And here I'm seeing it in three dimension. Yeah, maps are interesting. People, maps are really a work of art in themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I have a buddy, he actually collects maps and like they're really amazing because like how you say, like back then they're making them this really by hand and Mm -hmm. it's really, really impressive stuff. And things were changing so fast because, you know, with war, roads were blown up and destroyed. And Mm -hmm. so we had to put new roads in and, uh, so, it, you know, we didn't really care so much about what was on the roads or mm. anything like that. It was more about, you know, what roads are there, what rivers are there. Mm-hmm. Is there a bridge across the river kind of thing? That's interesting. And, like, were you, even at that point, were you, had you already picked up a camera? Or was it, like, photography even an interest for you at that point? Yeah, it was. And actually, I bought my first real camera when I was in the army in Hawaii, I bought a Pentex Spotmatic, which is like a classic. And, uh, so I started really shooting, you know, more touristy type photographs back then. It's kind of document your experience. Yeah. 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 And that was kind of getting close to the time I was about to leave Hawaii. So I didn't even really make that many photographs there. Yeah. But that's when I really started, you know, I got a camera that made good photographs and started making photographs. That's exciting. Like, when did it kind of, like, cause once you got out of the Army, what did you kind of do after that? Like, when did kind of, was there a point where you kind of decided photography was going to be kind of your life, kind of career? When did it kind of become more serious for you? Well, I don't know how serious it ever got, but I think... Yeah, uh, right, you got two books you've been teaching. I know, like, right. It's pretty serious. <laughs> I know. But... Um, you know, I just like taking photographs, and then I thought, well, maybe you know, I I could do this as a you know maybe a living. You maybe you could do a living. I had no idea, mm-hmm. and so when I got out of the military, I ended up, like I said, working in a still mill uh, in my hometown, and uh, it was funny. I tell this story all the time. Uh, the old timers that work there you know people like me they would always say what are you doing here you should oh, be, really? you should be going to school you don't want to be stuck in this still mill yeah and i i go well i am going to go to school and they go well what are you going to school for and i said i want to go to school for photography and this guy goes photography he goes well then you should go to rit wow this is an old time still worker that he knew about RIT, and I go, I never heard of RIT. And he goes, well, it's it's one of the best photo schools. And I go, why are they so, so good? And he goes, well, I don't know, but, but they teach the zone system there. Wow, that's kind of new as and, stuff. And I go, well, what's the zone system? And he goes, I don't know, but you need to know it. <laughs> so That's funny. So, and this, it, I mean, it, I, so much, I think, of your life deals with fate, mm-hmm. you know, who you meet, uh, 
your situation and how things go in that situation. And that's exactly so much of my life has been like that. And this was a prime example of that happening. Some, you know, still worker who probably knew very little about RIT. I have no idea how he found out about RIT, but yeah. he's the one that told me about it. And I would say within two weeks, I took a trip up to Rochester wow. to uh, see about getting into RIT. And back then, you know, a lot of vets were getting out of the military. So the schools, you know, there were a lot of students here and they were full. They, I couldn't get in. All right. And I got myself on a wait list and then probably two weeks before school was about to begin in September, uh, I got a phone call saying, uh, we have two, we have an opening at RAT if you want to come. Damn, two weeks, get it together. That's amazing. And I go, oh shit. And I go, yeah, I'll do it. I'm, I'm coming. And, um, and yeah, I just got it together. And I remember sitting in my first photo class, probably like three weeks later, um, and the first assignment was to get a four by five camera out of the cage and make some photographs. That's exciting. And Did you even know what that was at that point? No, I I leaned over to the person sitting on the desk next to me and go, "Do you know what a four by five is?" <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Like, oh, was your family like supportive of you kind of moving up here away from Pittsburgh and getting into photography? Like, um, what was kind of added? Like, what was the attitude towards like the profession of photography back then? Because at that point, well, it was still it was different than it is yeah, now. Yeah, it was people never thought you made a living in photography. They thought that you know it was just something you did. Yeah. And they were always supportive of just about everything that I did. So, and my father always said to travel, to get an education. Um, you know, he worked in a steel mill. He couldn't do all that stuff. And, um, so anyways, they were very supportive and, that's awesome. um, so yeah, it was, um, I didn't even know what you would do as a photographer and you just know you're, you're interested in, in it. Yeah. yeah. And the thing, it, the funny thing, you know, my parents thought, well, you know, you can go and learn how to be a photographer and then you can become a photographer for the steel mills. You could work for U.S. Steel as a photographer. And I go, oh, that could be kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, I like it. Your folks are, they're, 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 they're commercial photographers already. They're, they're thinking <laughs> highly commercial. Yeah. I, I like it. They got a good brain, man. Yeah. <laughs> See, these steel workers know more about it than I do. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and we, like you say, you first got the RAT, like you, you hadn't really, you didn't know what a four by five was. Uh, what do you kind of remember about those early experiences being at RAT? Like w- what kind of sticks out in your mind once you got there? What kind of stuff were you shooting? It was hard. I mean, I just, you know, I was always into shooting landscapes. I think everybody starting out shoots that way. And I wasn't real comfortable photographing people and, um, but I did like shoot photo. You know, we started working in the studio in my first year, and I like. I thought that was kind of interesting. Was I, it still in the same building we're in now, or is it, yeah, it was a different? Yeah, yeah. And um, 
So that was interesting, but the, everything was kind of new and interesting to me, and I wanted, I just wanted to try a little bit of everything. Yeah. And uh, so that was, you know, it was, I didn't really know anything. Did they have it kind of set up the same way they do now, where like at RIT, the way it's set up is like you can be in the photojournalism program, the commercial program, or fine art? Was it always kind of like that? It was similar, fewer choices then. You you were either in professional photography or fine art. Yeah. So you could be in professional photography and do journalism. You could do advertising. Yeah. Um, you could also take fine art courses, but fine art was definitely fine art, and commercial was more about learning the studio and learning product and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah, because even like looking at your work now, you, you really do a mix of like a lot of stuff. Like you'll like even the new book you have coming out, North by is it Nook? Is that how you say? Yeah, it? yeah it's like uh, there's a mix of like it's like photojournalism. You're documenting this place in the world, mm-hmm. but then you're also kind of taking like some fine art pictures, and mm-hmm. it's really you've always kind of had an interest in kind of like jumping around different yeah. kind of se- yeah. sections of photography. Yeah, yeah, I you know I don't really consider myself a fine artist. I I just, it's not really the way I work. I'm more, I guess if you want to put a label on it, I guess it would be more documentary. Yeah, you like working within like a project. Yeah, not nah. definitely. Why, why do you think that is? This kind of gives you like a parameter to kind of work Yeah, I on. need a direction. And I think it's maybe from my advertising background because, you know, working to a layout, you know, having ideas about you know it wasn't just going out and finding something or going out and just putting something together Mm -hmm. uh it was always about what do i want to say with this you know but i it's not like i didn't really necessarily want to create something from nothing Mm -hmm. even though you do that in advertising yeah um you know i had to have an an idea about what i wanted to say like you know, with the Day of the Dead, it was a project that I wanted to wanted people to learn about the Day of the Dead, and the same with Greenland. I wanted them to learn about Greenland. I wanted them to learn about Rockwell Kent, and those kind of things. You know, so some ways it's to share experiences, and in advertising, that's different. You know, you're you're there to, you know, get something done well that the client responds to yeah and to really control the whole situation with lighting and ideas and uh and that's fun too yeah no definitely it's really interesting and like when you're at rit like what kind of photos were you making like what did you did you even have like a goal in mind for like what you wanted to do like after you got out or how did that kind of play out for you well i knew i wanted to make a living in photography i knew i wanted to do photography and i knew i wanted to be more commercial uh with my work and and really i didn't have a sense of that until maybe my fourth year Mm -hmm. at rit and i did transfer into rit because i went to kent state university for where is that that's um just south of cleveland okay yeah yeah. about maybe 40 miles something like that and um, so I, there were people more advanced in photography in the courses I was going in. So I felt like I was always catching up at RIT to, to people. 
but by the time, you know, my, by the fourth year, I felt like I was starting to get a sense of lighting. I was starting to get a sense about creating something instead of just putting an object down and shooting it. And uh, so that was really important to me. And I, by the time I graduated, I thought my portfolio was pretty good. I was what proud was, of it. What was in it? Was it mostly like people or like? Um, not so much people, mostly still life. It was uh, some food, some uh, abstracted still lifes kind of things, uh, minimal, some minimal. And actually my wife, she was doing very uh, like color-filled studies. Kind she's, of a like, she's a painter, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was kind of uh, a little bit like Albers color interactive work and some sometimes i would use her paintings as backgrounds and and bring whatever i was shooting sometimes it was just fruit or sometimes it was you know different types of objects you know they weren't products at all i was not shooting products so much i was shooting objects and um so that's kind of what it was and was there like any photographers like you kind of admired like starting out like anybody you kind of looked up their work like hey that's kind of what I want to do or anything like that? Well, I always like Pete Turner's work. I loved Paul Strand from the beginning, uh, but Pete Turner, uh, Jay Maisel, oh, yeah. you know those those were the big guys in advertising at the time. Mm. And uh, Pete also graduated from RIT. Yeah. I never really knew it, but uh, interesting. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of photographers. I really liked their work. And like, uh, I was actually talking to Dan Hughes and he was like, he's, he's telling me, you should ask Dennis, like what, as someone who went to photo school has like taught at photo schools as a professor for years, like what's your opinion on photo school? Like, do you think it, it do you need to go to photo school to be a good photographer or what's kind of what's your perspective on it being that you've been mm. on on both sides of it yeah i had to go to photo school to be a good <laughs> photographer yeah because uh, i don't think i could have done it on my own mm -hmm. i think some people are just naturals at it but then you could be a really great photographer but it doesn't mean you're going to do anything with it so i think school is not just about teaching you how to be a photographer it's about learning about how you can actually make a living yeah and to do this uh as as a lifestyle or as as a way of you know keeping your life together yeah and I, yeah definitely I, I look at it as like time like because like w most people go to school their early 20s for the most part not always but it's like a not many times in your life you're ever going to have that much time to dedicate to one thing because, like, the older you get, mm -hmm. more more responsibilities, yeah. more yeah. bills, and it's just, like, yeah. I always just look at, when I look back at my time here, it's just, like, you don't realize it while you're in it, but to have that much time to all day dedicate to one thing, mm -hmm. I think that's the main thing I took away of it. And being around, obviously, the facilities, but more so the people because even, like, the years I was here, shit, man, like, so many good photographers came out. It was, like, when I was here as a... Park Dukovic was here, yeah. uh, Tom Schermacher, uh, uh, Christian Felber, this amazing photographers. Yeah. Do you even look back at your experience, the peers that you went to school with? Was that yeah. kind of like pretty motivating to be around that different photographers? Yeah, when you were talking about that, 
I mean, that's another thing that's so important about being here, the community that evolves from, especially here. I don't know how other schools are, but there's definitely a community and not even, uh, there's, even if you didn't go to school with someone, you're connected with someone because they're, oh, yeah. they're an RIT grad or yeah. whatever, and they want to know you and they want to, you know, reminisce and all that. So, yeah, definitely. I And I was just thinking, there's probably, just from my first year class, the, my photo one class, there's probably, let's say, five to ten people that I, I don't keep in touch with all the time but i do sometimes i talk to them on facebook that's awesome so and these are people that are like in their late 60s you know we've been in touch with each other for 40 years yeah it's amazing thing man like rochester uh i'd never been here before i came to school here and i've had this conversation so many times with people where like i think it's such a unique place because I think if I went to school in like New York or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. there's just so many more distractions. Because mm-hmm. like you know, RIT the winters are brutal. Yeah, it's are, not like as much disgusting. going on like city wise. So it's like it, it, at least for me, it, it, the only thing you do you live in the studio, yeah. you live at yeah. school, you're studying it. So mm-hmm. I think I think that was like an important thing for me. Like yeah. I don't know who knows. Well, especially with Rochester, Rochester is so photocentric. You know, especially when Kodak was going, I mean, it was so big and visual studies workshop and the Eastman museum, those places are just amazing. Yeah. You know, you don't have things like that anywhere else. No, it's a crazy place. I remember the first year I was here, I I was like tripping out. I was like, Elliot Erwitt was here. Dan Winters was here. Mm -hmm. Mary Ellen Mark. And it was just like blowing my mind. I was just like, it's like, what is this place? And it still continues. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just, it doesn't stop. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. So once you kind of got out of uh, RIT, you graduated, what was kind of your next step? Like, did you uh, end up shooting well, for a while? Or Yeah, I, um, I did some, my wife and I kind of did a little bit of research about, I the whole Northeast at the time was in a recession, and Pittsburgh was out. I went and visited with some people in Pittsburgh, and there, you know things were dead there. It was like steel what, mills were dying, like early eighties, late seventies, late seventies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I figured, and New York City was in a recession, and but a, a number of students from my class went to New York City. Yeah. But I just I didn't want that. Yeah. And so we looked at Atlanta, Minneapolis, Kansas City. Houston, wow, and they were all possibilities. And I go Atlanta. I would sooner be in Atlanta because I'm tired of winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we ended up going, and it was the closest and the cheapest place for us to move to. So we went there, and it was different then because you, there was no internet. There, you know, all I had was a phone book of photographers. There wasn't the black book. There wasn't any advertising by photographers and but i got some names and actually a couple rat grads that were in uh atlanta so i went down and started looking and everybody was positive about the portfolio but at the time freelance didn't exist so you had to work full time or else you didn't work interesting and uh so do you think that was more so in atlanta or you think new york was like that too i think 
it was kind of that way. New York was changing at the time, but okay. Atlanta was definitely you contract worked yeah. full time. Got know? it. And uh, so I only had enough money for a week to be there, and by Wednesday. I had seen a lot of people and very positive responses, but nobody needed anyone. So I knew a photographer in Atlanta or in Miami by the name of Randy Miller. And I called him and I go, Randy, I'm, I'm in Atlanta looking for an assisting job and uh, I'm not having any luck. And I go, I'm thinking of coming down to Miami. Would you have time to meet with me? And he goes, don't come to Miami. There's nothing here. He goes, stay in Atlanta. And he gave me three names of photographers. And one of them was Tim Olive, okay. who I ended up working with. I had an interview with him. He was in uh, Randy Miller's old studio because Randy lived in Atlanta. And so uh, he actually wanted to hire someone from RIT he wanted someone with the background that RIT would give you. And so it was a Friday. I interviewed with him, and we were heading back to Rochester that same day. I called him from Tennessee in a payphone. Damn. <laughs> and I said, Tim, you know, I'm heading back to Rochester. What's the chance of working with you? And he says, well, I want to hire you. And I go, okay, I just have to go to Rochester and pack up and come down. I'll be there next week wow and uh so i was working with tim the following week damn what and kind of what kind of stuff was he working on he was a great person to work with because he was <clears throat> he was young he was just really getting established but he was getting established at a very high level he was becoming one of the best photographers in atlanta mm. and he shot kind of a general most everyone in atlanta was a generalist but there were some that shot food and some that shot people but tim shot pretty much everything he talked about his approach to photography was he was he wanted to do conceptual work okay he wanted to think about what he was shooting and not just shoot objects kind of thing so that was his whole shtick in terms of you know what how he advertised his last name was olive right. so every every he was advertising in the black book and all these photo publications and every photograph had to do with olives okay uh one was like a gumball machine full of olives and olives was like the prize coming out of the gumball machine he a gold gold digger kind of or gold miner uh had a plate of gold and the olive was hey, man, <laughs> the gold that's, and, that's that's branding that's branding yes, right there you know yes. it's important his stuff. his letterhead was so beautiful it was a airbrushed picture of a, you know this big green olive with this lush yeah. pimento in it <laughs> and it was gorgeous and it won all kinds of awards for you know like letterheads and but he was a great guy, uh, really always wanted to push the envelope on whatever he was shooting. So I learned a lot from him about the whole business and how to really create work and to be an individual. And 
so I worked with him for two years, and I just couldn't assist anymore. I had to go out on my own. You're, and, you're itching to shoot. Yeah, and uh, I go to him. I go, Tim. You know, if you ever have any jobs you don't want, you don't want, <laughs> send them my way. He goes, if I don't want the job, you shouldn't be shooting it. Uh, so he goes, so you're not going to get any jobs yeah, from me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I never did. Yeah, yeah. But. Uh, you know, so I stayed. I was in Atlanta for two more years shooting, um, and you know it was great. I shot. I was again. I shot people. I shot still lives. I shot really everything. I shot locations. Who were like some of the clients you're working with down there? It's like well, everybody works with Coca Cola. Yeah, you know, I shot for White Lily Flower. I wow. shot for McGregor Golf Equipment. Damn. Uh, who else? Um, there was this one, probably one of my most famous photographs from Atlanta. None of them are all that famous, <laughs> if at all. But it was for a company called Puritan. Puritan. They made rope and different kind of uh, materials for water water sports and stuff like that. Yeah. And this was right about the time when... Uh, Ten, the movie Ten came out with cornrows and yeah, things yeah. like that. So we did this photograph of a woman laying in water in a bikini, and it was just called a pure ten. And I mean, it was beautiful. We shot it with eight by ten and everything. And it's like they're using these photos for kind of like advertising and stuff. Yeah, and it's yeah. like I feel like I. I feel like by the time I got out of school, like I always would hear people talking about like annual reports, like companies with these yeah. annual reports, which I, yeah. I don't think they really do any anymore. No. But back then, was that like some of the stuff? That you was guys... big. I didn't do much. I I shot a couple annual reports, but that was like but... a big deal back in the day. Like yeah. you got an annual report, that was like yeah, a good gig. That was really good, yeah. and it was always like a certain time of year that you would get them. Yeah. But I was doing a lot of studio work mm. as well, and. Uh, but we were doing catalogs as well. You know, now catalogs, you just pump them out like crazy. Or, yeah. But it, catalogs are going on the web, mm -hmm. whereas everything then was being printed. And the stuff we were shooting for McGregor Golf Equipment was just so beautifully printed. And, you know, so it was just really great stuff. Definitely. So, like, what, what what did you do? Kind of, you say you stayed in Atlanta for two years. What did you kind of do after that? Well, I was there for four years, and then I just I Wasn't I was starting to realize the pressure. I was always stressed out about shooting, and this one day I was I had to shoot. Uh, talk about annual report. I had to shoot an annual report, <laughs> a portrait, a CEO, and yeah. some other stuff in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Of I think it was for Arnold's Bread. Okay. And uh, so I flew down in the morning on a corporate flight and then shot for about three hours and flew back to Atlanta. And I, I had this migraine headache and... So before I left um, Jacksonville, I got a phone call from the studio saying, oh, you, you know, as soon as you get back, you're going to start shooting this still life. And 
you know, and I was not feeling that good. And I got back and got back to the studio probably about five o'clock, and I had to do a shoot that night. And it was like I was always shooting, always working. And, you know, I got home probably nine or 10 o'clock, and my wife was saying, This is crazy. Yeah. You know, you're, this is not cut out for you. And so, you know, after that, I started thinking, well, maybe I might try teaching or something. And, okay. And again, it's another thing that with fate, I got a, a letter from RIT that said Colorado Mountain College was looking for a professor. And I had never taught or anything like that. Colorado Mountain College is in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Oh, is this, is this kind of like they would just send it to alumni, like, hey, yeah. here's a job possibility? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, got it. And I had never gotten one before, and I've never gotten one since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I applied for this thinking, you know, what do I have to lose? And if it wasn't Colorado, I would have never applied. So I thought, well, I would love to live in Colorado. So I ended up getting the job. I don't know how, but I did. What was the college again? It was called the... What was the name of the school? Colorado Mountain College. Got it. And it's still going. Actually, um, an RET grad runs the program now, and it's a very good school. Uh, it's a two-year school. Okay. And so I, li- I t- taught there for four years and was still doing – I was doing a lot more editorial work in Colorado. I hardly did any oh, editorial. Oh, so you were, you were teaching and shooting at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, – shooting a lot and it was great because where i was it was only maybe 40 miles 30 miles from aspen and you had all these like big name art directors that were from la or san francisco that just got sick of the industry moved to aspen and started doing little projects in aspen what a life and they (laughs) found out i was from atlanta and so, you know, I was getting work like crazy there. That's exciting. Yeah, it was fun. And uh, so anyways, uh, I was there for four years. And, you know, my wife, you know, she wanted to go back to school for art. And so, and plus I was getting tired of teaching at a two-year school. Why is that you and think? It, was just kind of- it just, I felt like the students at the end of two years thought they were ready to go out and be photographers and they weren't and the school thought they were ready to go out and be photographers and i just felt like you know i loved colorado you know everything was fantastic and i just said you know this this isn't the right life. I can't be happy all the time. Man. I gotta suffer. <laughs> right. I know. Dennis goes from stress, so he moves to Colorado. He's like, right. I'm feeling great. I'm too good. I need more stress back. Right. That's about right. <laughs> so um, again, you know, there was this job offering at texas a&m commerce and outside of dallas and so i went down there and that was a four-year school again it was i didn't like texas at all but i loved you know working with the people that i worked with there they were really good teachers and good friends and the students were were good yeah and so i enjoyed that but i just as soon as i went to texas i go i'm not staying here What, what, what didn't you like about it Texas, yeah, I, it was just. I think people, for the most part, 
were very regional yeah. and kind of, you know, a lot of them thought Texas was the greatest thing in the world, but had never yeah. been out of Texas. And it was flat, especially, you know, you went from probably the most beautiful place you could live in the country yeah. to one of the least <laughs> beautiful places to live in the country, at least in my mind. Yeah, I've only been to – I went to Texas once. I went this year. I went to Austin, which mm-hmm. I don't think that represents no, Texas. No, it that, doesn't. That's like it it, does. it's on its own <laughs> yeah, island. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can't, you can't compare from that. Nah. But was like teaching something – did you kind of enjoy it from the get-go? Was it like a daunting thing because like – teaching is a real skill because like you could be really great at something but being able to kind of communicate that stuff and Mm -hmm. teach it to someone is a skill in in it to itself was it like kind of a daunting thing for you at first or well yeah i was scared to death yeah you know i just and it's funny as a photographer you a lot of things you do you just do because you're used to doing it and you have experience and then all of a sudden now i'm supposed to teach the students what I know Mm -hmm. and a lot of times I just took for granted anybody would know this but they didn't no and so it took a couple years to figure it out and again in Colorado I had really good uh, mentors let's say and I had great mentors in in Texas as well Mm -hmm. Uh, James Newberry who was just a great teacher and a great friend, and Stan Godwin, who's uh, an RAT grad, was just a very, very good friend. And um, I think we we had a great group. And uh, Priscilla Smith was another person that taught there, and wow. it was a really excellent school. Yeah, it's a really and, hard thing because like you're teaching, but every person like has a different way they learn. So it's like, that's the one thing I've always, I was never like good at school. Like I always kind of struggled because it would take me longer to like, like learn something. And I learned like different ways. Like some people are visual learners. Some people are like need to hear it or read it or whatnot. Like how do you, as a teacher, like how do you kind of deal with that? Because each person in your class has a different personality. Do you have to kind of approach every person differently or? Yeah, it's, that's the whole thing about teaching is you, you can't, I mean, obviously with lectures and everything, you know, there's no, it's, yeah. this is what it is and yeah, yeah. demos and things like that. But you have to let people be who they are and, you know, build who they are with their work and their experimentation and things like that. So you have to be supportive and as much as you can. But if you know they're just not going in the right direction, then, you know, you pull them back and... Uh, so yeah, I try to always treat every student individually and yeah. work with them that way. No, it's interesting. And then you ended up like how I, I went to school here. You were my professor. How did you kind of end up uh, getting the job here? Well, you, my wife finished her degree here, or I'm not sorry. My wife finished her degree at uh, Texas A&M Commerce okay. in uh, painting. Yeah. art and she wanted to get her mfa and she applied to hunter college and was accepted there so uh, she was planning on going to new york city and two jobs came up that one at rit and one at university of delaware 
and I actually was more interested in University of Delaware because, <laughs> well, it was close to New York. Okay. It was close to the beach. It was close to Philadelphia, close to D.C. Right. I mean, I I just felt like, man, there's a lot of opportunity no, there. No, definitely. Yeah, right. And um, so I, had inter- I got interviews at both places. And uh, when I was, you know, so anyways, I came back from the interviews and maybe three days after RIT, I got a phone call saying uh, they, they wanted to hire me. And I said, well, you know, I listened to what they had to say. And then I said, um, I'll have to think about it. And so I called University of Delaware as soon as I heard that. And I go, when are you going to find out or when are you going to decide about this job? Yeah. And he goes, well, probably next week we'll make a decision. I go, well, RIT has offered me a job and I, I need to make a decision. And he goes, well, if RIT offered you why a job, you why would you come here? <laughs> so... Thank that, you for the advice. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I go, well, I guess that's my answer, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that was good advice, actually. Mm. And, you know, RAT is just an amazing place, you know, because of people like you. And uh, I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, yeah, the faculty, the students, you know, and everything else. We talked about Rochester in terms of photography. So, um, so I came here. It's been great. I've got to travel around the world because of RIT and yeah. um, do the things that I wanted to do. And yeah, and this year I believe you're retiring at the end of well, coming up in May. It will be your retiring, right? Yeah, yeah, thirty three years, something like that. That's, Thirty. That's amazing. Like, yeah. like looking back, who are like, like who are some of the photographers that kind of stick out in your mind? Because I would imagine thirty three years, even the three years I was here, some badass photographers came out of this program. Like people that have graduated. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, you've had a lot of good photographers in your class. Yeah. Some of them are teaching here. Yeah. You know, like, uh, Rachel Ferraro. Yeah. Uh, Dan Hughes. Yeah. Uh, Bob Rose. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some other ones. Yeah. Um, Boy, there's, you know, there's just so many people, yeah. and you mentioned a bunch of them. Yeah, like Pari, yeah. he's like biggest photographer in the game right now. Yeah, like that yeah. guy is the stuff that guy is doing is right. just like incredible. Right, and, yeah. a and lot. he's such a genuine person. Yeah, and uh, you know, Kwaku Alston and uh, Shingo Ten- Tanaga, yeah. who's in. Uh, Tokyo, um, and it's a kind of. It must be interesting, like seeing people from coming in as like a freshman to, like their progression. Is it kind of like? Is that kind of like an exciting aspect of like teaching? Is kind of seeing the the evolution of like people. Is it? Do some students kind of surprise you? Like where from where they start to where mm-hmm. they end? I know. You know. You do. Uh, at some at some point, I was seeing that because I was teaching summer transfer a lot Mm -hmm. and you saw amazing amazing progress by students even in that 10 weeks of the summer and then you would see it throughout the next two years they were here but um lately you know we don't we don't teach in the summer anymore and 
I'm mostly teaching fourth year, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really see the progression. that. Yeah, but you see how good these stu- good people are. Yeah, and there are just so many really good photographers that come out of here. Yeah, definitely, and it's it's pretty amazing because like once you know I didn't realize this until after I got out of school. It's like photography for the most part is a very solitary job. Is you're working a lot, especially you're working freelance. You're working for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're not in this environment with like like we said the people that are around you. You can learn from them. So that's kind of the cool thing about it. Um, but yeah, it's awesome. I guess like uh, 33 years. Like what's kind of your feeling uh, stepping away? Like is it like a feeling of like excitement to moving on to the new next thing for you? Or like how are you feeling about like kind of being being here for so long? Mm-hmm. It's got to be a lot of emotions, right? Yeah. And I think it's almost the same. It's not quite the same feeling I had when I was leaving Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it's the same. I just feel like, man, I just put so much time in every day to the things I'm doing, yeah. you know. And if I don't didn't have RAT in the middle of that, then I could put more time into the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like pr- new projects or, you know, promoting the projects I'm, I've done traveling like traveling yeah so they're just a lot and plus you know I want to do a lot of that before you know while I'm healthy and why I can do it and why I really have the drive to do it and, yeah yeah and uh, so it's exciting so yeah it's very very exciting there are a lot of things I'll miss about here but you know you know when the time is right mm-hmm. and for me it's right yeah and uh no, nah, it's awesome. And um, with that, I was really excited to sit down with you. You got, like we mentioned, you got a brand new book coming out, North by Nook, um, which uh, all about all about Greenland. Uh, <laughs> it's that... actually North by Nook. Nook, okay. Um, Greenland after Rockwell Kent. Okay, got it. My bad. Um, yeah, I was looking at the website last night. Uh, how did that kind of project come about? I believe it was kind of like was it like a grant? It was in association with like a yeah. It was it was a long long process. I it was what started all of it. I was in Plattsburgh, and I was at the Rockwell Kent Museum, and the curator there was showing me some lantern slides that Rockwell Kent made, and I thought these were like little jewels. They were like in a wooden box, and you would pull them out, and it was like a gem. Everyone was like a gem. And I saw those, and I go, man, I've got to do something about this, because no one is, very few of them were ever published. And Kent, in the mid-1930s, would travel around the country he was really, really popular, and he would do lectures and slideshows about Greenland. So, He's like an illustrator, right? Yeah, illustrator. He was everything, a painter, illustrator, writer, architect, uh, and was he like, printmaker. Were you, were you familiar with his work prior to going to that yeah. museum? Oh, so you already yeah. knew about him, all mm-hmm. right. And uh, I remember once being on 57th Street and new york city and the fuller building walking into a gallery and it was like a salon style and it it was like the greatest hits of painters you know in a commercial space and there was one painting that just stood out and it was rockwell kent's wow and uh 
So, yeah, I always liked his work, but I didn't know a lot about him, and I knew nothing about Greenland, mm. very little about Greenland. So, um, so I saw those, and then I just figured, okay, how am I going to be able to go to Greenland? And I thought maybe a National Science Foundation award, and you know, I could figure out a way of making it. You know, there's uh, social science is part of it, and so I figured I could make that work. And I, Oops, no worries. I uh, <coughs> connected with the dean of liberal arts, and I said, "Do you know any, let's say, anthropologist that would be interested in working on a Greenland project?" And he. It was great. He sent me, and that's another great thing about RIT. I mean, resources. you have resources everywhere. And he sent me six names, and I contacted every one of them. I told him this is the project I want to do. And it was basically a comparative study based on Rockwell Kent's time in Greenland and, and me going to Greenland to where he lived. And that was your idea? Yeah. All right. And so uh, everybody wrote back saying, I love the idea, and – Five of them said, "I just don't have time. I, you know, I can't do this." And the sixth one, uh, Mark Nuttall's his name, wrote back and said, "Yeah, I love this idea. Let's do it." And where is he from? Is he from? He's a professor at University of Alberta wow. in Canada. Plus, he's the head of climate control or climate change in at the University of Greenland. Wow! And the guy, he is like the top of the echelon of people that know Greenland of anthropological scientists and, and he wants to do this. And so we wrote twice, uh, proposals for NSF. And the first time it was rejected, they wanted more, less photography, more science. And then we rewrote, came back again, Less photography, more science. Even though we're going to shoot the crap out of it. <laughs> yeah. And um, so Mark was so upset. He goes, this is ridiculous. And I, everybody knows who Mark Natal is. Yeah. You know, some people might know who I am, but everybody knows who Mark is. Yeah. And he goes, this is, this is bullshit. And so he goes, I'm not going to apply again. And the person I was working with at NSF, she goes, everybody loves this project. You just have to write it so they respond to it. Okay. And it needs to be more uh, science-oriented. So anyways, we got together with three people from Greenland and wrote it again. It was approved and that began this whole process of spending – I spent a year and a half in Greenland. That's wild. Yeah, you lived there for a year and a half. Off and on, but most most of the time I was there. I came back uh, during the holidays okay. because it's it's nighttime the whole time All right. in Greenland at that time. And then I went back about the 10th of January to photograph. And then – so I started in April and I finished in – April of 2016 and finished shooting there in 
July of 2017. So is you, Mark, and then you are working with people that are actually from Greenland? Well, Mark dropped out. Oh, he dropped and out. And I right? actually met Mark a bunch of times oh, Okay, in got you, got you. All right. So I, I worked with uh, a historian and a Greenlander by the name of Axel Jeremiahson. How do you even make that relationship with someone like – like how do you um, – Well, I – was given the name Susan Vanick, who was a PhD candidate at SUNY Binghamton, wow. but she was living in Greenland. She was the first person I contacted. Then there was a person, um, Yetta Rygaard, who was teaching at University of Greenland, but she's from Denmark, but she's been in Greenland for 25 years. So I talked to Susan, and she was all for it, and then... Um, and I w- went through the roster of faculty at the University of Greenland, and I saw Yetta. She had done a lot. Yeah. And so I go, what about Yetta? Maybe she should be interested. And, and Susan goes, no, she's busy all the time. And But she asked her, and she, or I wrote to her, actually, and I asked her, and she said, yes, I want to do this. <laughs> and she did. And then um, – Susan suggested Axel Jeremiahson as a historian, and I go, "What do we need a historian for? I don't, I don't think that's necessary." And she goes, "Well, he's a Greenlandic; that might be helpful." I go, "Well, I don't know. I guess, I guess it'd be okay." And so we brought him in. He ended up being a lifesaver. If yeah. we hadn't brought him into the project. At least, especially for me, maybe not so much for Susan and Yetta, but for me, I could have never done this whole project without his help. What did he? he was, what, what did he bring to the project? He brought culture. He understood how people think in Greenland. He taught me that. He introduced me to a lot of people. He spoke the language. When we were in Islorswit, that was an island of seventy. You know, this little town of 70 people, no roads, no cars, uh, no running water. Um, Think about, you know, here's this white American walking around town with a camera. You know, why? And so, but we also did, we introduced every community that we went to to the project mm-hmm. and we showed slides of Rockwell Kent's and talked about Rockwell Kent and that he lived there for a while. And, and, uh, so Axel was very instrumental in making that happen and, you know, translating for us. I mean, he would translate it so much. Yeah, and Cause what language do they speak there? Greenlandic. Greenlandic. Yeah. All it's right. kind of an Inuit variation. Yeah, that's the amazing thing about the photos. I was looking at them. Is you obviously there's amazing landscapes and things like that, but you're like amazing portraits. You're in these people's homes. Like, what was the initial reaction? Like, were people welcoming welcoming to you guys uh, being there? Did it kind of take you a while to kind of build those relationships, or what was kind of the overall experience and kind of added towards towards you? I guess. Well, definitely took a long time. Like the my best photographs were probably, I don't know eight months after I got there. Yeah. Um, There are some really good ones early on, but they're not about people. They're about landscape and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a slow process, and people weren't mean or anything like that. They just – they weren't even curious to – 
you know, they kind of wondered why I was there, but yeah. it was more about, okay, you know, this guy's here. So, yeah. <laughs> but I just, every day I was out photographing and they saw me with the camera and I would smile and talk, you know, try and talk to them. Nobody spoke English. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually it's funny, you know, I tell people, you know, when I lived in this lore sweat, there were 70 people, the population in this lore sweat. And by the time I would say, you know, I got there in April, but I was in and out of this lore sweat because I was in Umanak, I was in Sisimut, and I was in Nuuk. And, uh, but whenever I was in this lore sweat, you know, that was to me the most important place because that's where Kent spent most of his time. So anyways, from I first went to Islorswood in April 2016, and then I think my some of my people photographs are probably best done in like the winter of 2017. And uh, but anyway, so I probably photographed 90% of the people in Islorswood. Wow, maybe amazing. more. That's amazing. And, and this one day, I put up a sign. The way people communicate, they, they're billboards or, you know, cork boards, and you put notes on the cork board. So I put a note saying, come to my house on Sunday afternoon. for uh, I'll do portraits, and uh, I'll give you prints and everything. I had a printer with me, okay. so I printed everything for people. Nice. And... Uh, and, and, you know, it was kind of slow, you know, like I said, 12 o'clock, people didn't start coming until like one thirty or something <laughs> like that. And then it was just nonstop. I probably photographed 25 people that afternoon. And then after that, people would come up to me and, you know, ask to have their pictures taken and come to come to my house. And they feel comfortable with you. Yeah, I mean they were comfortable with me before, but they now they were comfortable getting their photograph taken. And that's really amazing cuz like having that much time to spend on one project like yeah. it just doesn't happen. No. Like like no. what was it was that amazing. almost seems like a challenge in itself cuz like when you're there that long, do you do you feel like you start to like run out of ideas or is it, does the project change as you're going? Like, cause I can't imagine spending that. It's really impressive. It, no, I never ran out of, it was just every day. I just forced myself to go out and photograph. And sometimes it would be, I knew things that I want. I wanted to photograph people on dog sleds. I wanted to photograph people fishing. Like I have one photograph. I was with a fisherman on a boat for like, 10 hours fishing for ha halibut. Wow. And uh, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Greenlandic. and But we got along fine. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of thing. So I knew I wanted to do that. So there were different things that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to get on a trawler and mm -hmm. photograph, you know, what was happening on those trawlers when they were fishing. And uh, there were definitely people that I wanted to meet with. And we and one of the things with Axel again, how helpful he was, you know, we 
we're we're doing video interviews. Okay. We did like twenty seven video interviews of elders and teachers and policemen and you know Inuit, mostly Inuits in Greenland that had something to say about Greenland and uh, manage city managers and things like that. Are you gonna post that anywhere? Um, the, the problem is, it's just, I translating, translating. Yeah. So I have only translated one and I have time. two, yeah. Two that are Danish and two that are English. Actually, there was one, he was a policeman, one of the few Greenlandic policemen that I, that are in Greenland and, uh, most police are Danish and, you know, I asked him to do an interview and he goes yeah i'll do it if i can do it in english okay and he this that's his like third language Holy probably shit. and he was great he was just such a great guy and uh so yeah i i knew what i wanted to accomplish and i i didn't know how i was going to accomplish it and there were things that i would have liked to have done more uh dog sledding i would have liked to have done some hunting with people, but uh, that was always kind of difficult. Yeah. And Why? Because people just didn't want you there. Like, well, for one, like for hunting reindeer, they're they're going out for days. And, yeah. yeah, and sometimes all they have is like a little tiny blow up boat to get them across these large lakes and things like that. So. Yeah. To have an extra person just didn't make sense, and um, and then dogs going out hunting with dog sleds, you know, it was just awkward. I think it was difficult for the the Inuits to do that because um, you know they have they go out by themselves, and I think to have a person with them and this slows them down. Kind yeah, of, they have this logistics of it. Yeah. Um, um, what was kind of like the overall? What's like? What's the culture like? What are people doing for a living there? Is it just like? It's mostly fishing. Yeah. Uh, hunting. They hunt just for f- food, kind of. But you know, their house. They have houses, kind of like ours, except. Every one of the houses in Greenland have this beautiful view of the mountains and the water, <laughs> yeah. and they but they have big screen televisions and okay. sometimes internet, sometimes not. You know, all depends on how good the signals are. Yeah, and um, they're you know they're not that to me. You see a lot of photographs of Inuits that are more in northern Greenland and Thule area, things like that, much more remote. And I was very remote, but yeah. this is, like, way above the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Like, Islorsuit was about 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Um, but they're, they're not much different than us. You know, they like music. They, you know, they like family. You know, they're part of the community what kind of were they, would they listen to any like uh like music from the u.s or were they mostly there yeah some yeah. they knew the you know the beatles and yeah. things like that but most of it's greenlandic yeah you know, like folk music and but there was one person i photographed in nuke he he was the the sound person for Cadillac, which is kind of a cultural center and they have theaters and music and things like that and um, plays and so on and f- so forth. And 
he has a video on YouTube. It's kind of a rap video, and it is so good. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's it's pretty long, and it has a lot of people on it. You know, and there's three women that are probably middle-aged women, and they're rapping. <laughs> and it, I, I just, I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. And another big component of this project is just the element of climate change. And what you read is like a lot of these people are moving away from it because it's with the climate change and mm-hmm. everything. I guess, what did you kind of learn about uh, climate change and everything that's kind of going on there with your experience? Well, there's... I mean, there's nothing they can do about climate change, and they're they just deal with it. You know, they're they adapt to whatever the situation is, and they um, the big the things to change is you know the kind of fish they're catching. You know, there are a lot more cod there now than there used to be. Mm. They even talked about tuna are starting to come into the waters because the waters are warming up. Yeah, and. Um, the icebergs there's you know a lot more melting water things like that the water levels are going up um but the thing that happened with its lorswit it's basically been you they're not they were abandoned they had not abandoned they had to leave its lorswit because there was a tsunami that hit its lorswit and the reason it hit or is Lorswood is because a mountainside came falling into the fjord and it created this huge tsunami. Shit. And uh, in this Lorswood, no one was killed or anything, but uh, Nugatziat, which is was closer to where the mountain fell into the fjord, there were, I don't know how many, three or five people that were killed with the tsunami. Yeah. So... That kind of thing where mountains are kind of no longer stable, you know, because of all the ice is melted. And mm-hmm. uh, so they're not allowed to live back in Islorswood anymore because of they're afraid, the government's afraid it's going to happen again. Damn, that's wild. Yeah. So that kind of, and the government says it's not because of climate change. It just was a coincidence. Yeah, okay. Timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really amazing stuff. I guess, like, what was kind of, looking back on your time there, like, what do you kind of think you took away as it? Like, what did you learn most? Like, what do you look back on or remember most, you think, out of being able to spend that much time in one place? You know, the one thing I probably learned more than anything, and maybe that, brought my retirement <laughs> quicker is you just have to live life yeah and you know enjoy life and take advantage of all the opportunities and take advantage of a beautiful day mm-hmm. where you can just walk and look and and not uh have to worry about anything else and um and I think that that's why they live there is because they love it. They love the solitude or being remote. They love fishing and they love, you know, outdoor activities, whether it's winter or spring, fall, summer. It doesn't matter. You know, whatever it is, they'll figure out how to get around. Yeah. And uh, so I just like their the way they live and they're 
their excitement about living and their excitement about fishing and hunting and yeah and providing things for their family and and not being so uh reliant on you know technology and te- yeah or just people you know going to Wegmans or going to the grocery store to buy everything that you yeah have yeah no definitely it's a really amazing experience you had um and now with the book coming out uh like what's the process of like you shot so much yeah like <laughs> how do you what's the process of putting this book together did you kind of did you kind of work with people to help edit it or do you just do it yourself and mm-hmm. what's kind of your overall goal kind of editing a body of work with so much <laughs> it took it was a long process and i definitely had people helping me and uh you know it just like you know Greg Halpern, who teaches here at RAT, he he helped me with some of the editing. What I did, I I did all the editing, probably down to like a thousand images, yep. and then from that, I Seeking. asked people to help. Yeah, and uh, you know, Greg helped. Uh, Whitney Tressel oh, wow. was really helpful, um, and you know, there were others definitely, and I you know I don't want to leave names out but yeah yeah um but there were a lot of people that helped with the process and um but it came down to taking their advice and look looking at what they had to say and then making my choices and mm. and so and the same with the exhibition you know it was again editing down from there's about 125 photographs in the book, and then the exhibition has 52 photographs. Oh, and uh, so the whole thing was a process of editing from day one. And there were a lot. Uh, the one thing that all these editors helped me with was uh, to let loose of some of these photographs. Like Ken Geiger, I don't know if you know him. No. He's He used to be at national geo okay. a photo editor there and um he was really helpful at you know kind of picking and choosing and it's it was great like greg has a certain way of looking at things whitney was like very much on top of things she was really easy really good at throwing things out <laughs> she did the hardest edit let's say and then ken was really good at saying you know there all of these are good and now you have to edit some more <laughs> yeah. and uh so yeah it was it was great to have and then being at rat you have so many people that can give you feedback and, yeah and uh yeah it's a daunting task it's yeah. uh it's exciting though i'm looking forward to seeing yeah it was fun Look, and looking forward to seeing it and uh for if people want to buy the book where the, where, where can they purchase it well they can buy it on the back of that card. Oh, at, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, edu. it looks like here. Right. Yeah, perfect. I'll link it and um, check it out. Yeah, and if you mention the card, you can probably get it for a discount. All right. Yeah, I'll put it on there. That's exciting yeah. stuff, Dennis. Yeah, um, it's it's been a good good ride so far. Yeah, it's still going. Yeah, so I guess my last question, man, like what's next, man, with everything – 
you're doing? Like, what's kind of got you excited about photography? What's the next thing? I want to, well, I actually, a couple things. I want to definitely disseminate this work and the exhibition. I want it to travel, mm-hmm. um, eventually get it to Europe. Um, I'd, I would actually like to go back to Greenland at some point. That's what I'm saying. I, Do a show there. That would be the. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. There aren't many places. I had a show at the Sissa Museum already. Yeah. But uh, uh, there's an art museum in Nuuk that I think would be a good place to show. Mm. And uh, but that will be down the road. And uh, probably I want to show in Copenhagen. I want to show in. Sweden. I and, like it. Then it's got goals, man. And, and, and I will. Yeah. And uh, and then places in the U.S. There's probably a half a dozen places in the U.S. I want to show. Nice. And um, but I would like to go back. I really would like to go back and photo re-photograph some of the people that lived in Islorsuit that aren't there anymore, and okay. maybe go back to Islorsuit now that it's abandoned. Yeah. And. Uh, and I would also like to work with Mark Nuttall because uh, he was so helpful, and we never got to work together. And yeah. so, if I get, you know, a little more time, you know, I'm going to get back in touch with him and say. And he's already talked about working together, so that's exciting. Yeah, I want to do that, and then I want to get back to work on the afterlives of natural history the ones where I'm, that's a project where i was photographing extinct species oh yeah that are the specimens in natural history museums and i'm shooting that with type 55 negative dang you still got and some i do <laughs> <laughs> i bought a whole case it was not cheap it's but still, I, still good i always wonder about that once again well as long as you keep it refrigerated but you know, there, I'm sure there's it's diminishing return kind of if those pods start drying yeah. out. Yeah. So far, it's been good. Some of them dry out, but yeah. not all of them. But so, anyways, that's what I want to do. So I still have a lot of things Perfect. that I need to do. I love it, Dennis. Well, uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. And more than anything, is thank you for everything you taught me going to school here. I've talked to a couple of my fellow students, and the thing I always enjoyed about uh, being in your class and going to Zion is, like, you truly have, like, an enthusiasm for photography, and it really comes through in your teaching, so I can't thank you enough, man. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to talk and to see you again and (laughs) (laughs) spend some time together. And what's the website? For people listening, they want to go check out the Greenland stuff? It's it's, um, Dennis Defabaugh. Greenland. I'll link it. It'll be in the description. I'll post it and everything. Okay. But uh, thanks so much, Dennis. Thank you. So there you have it. That was the Dennis Defabaugh interview. I uh, just want to thank Dennis so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was a real pleasure talking to him about everything he's kind of done over the course of his career in photography and uh, teaching at RIT. Um, this is a really uh, amazing photographer. Uh, like I said, Dennis was one of my favorite professors while I was attending RIT. Um, so can't thank him enough. Um, definitely go check out Dennis's website at DennisDefabaughGreenland.com. He has a whole website dedicated to his new book um, that he published about Greenland. Um, I'll put the link in the description, but definitely go check that out. And you can purchase the book on there as well. 
And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, as well as my website, alexgagnephoto.com, and on my Instagram, at alexgagnephoto. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.